Welcome to the Unsweetened Sayo podcast. My name is Siobhan Harris. I am a certified integrative nutrition health coach and the founder of unsweetenedsayo.com. I gave up all sugar and all flour on January 13th, 2018, and am finally free of my addiction. My mission is to help other sugar addicts find their path to freedom and live the sweet life without sugar. Hi everyone, it's Siobhan. Are you ready to break up with sugar once and for all? Are you ready to get off of the sugar roller coaster and start on your own path to freedom? Well, if you are, join me in my group coaching program set to kick off on Sunday, May 2nd. It was going to be six weeks, but I decided to add in a bonus week. So it'll be seven weeks starting Sunday, May 2nd, and will include weekly Zoom sessions, a private Facebook group for daily support and to get your questions answered, accountability buddies to stay in, with, stay in touch with throughout the day, plus weekly discussion topics and homework. We're also including a VIP option, which will include four 45-minute one-on-one coaching sessions with me, which will also include the emotion code and the body code. If you or someone you know might be interested, please go to my website, www.unsweetensio.com and click on work with me and then click on the group coaching tab and it will have all the details and you can sign up right there. As always, feel free to reach out to me with any questions, but I would love to have you start to live the sweet life without sugar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 97 of Unsweetened Sayo, the podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have Dr. Nicole Avina with us. Dr. Nicole is a research neuroscientist and expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction. She is a pioneer in the field of food addiction, and it was her seminal research work that jump-started this exciting new field of exploration in medicine and nutrition. She's also an expert in diet during pregnancy and childhood nutrition. Dr. Avina's book, Why Diets Fail, reviews the research on food addiction and provides a way in which people can remove added sugars and carbohydrates from their diet. She has another best-selling book, What to Eat When You're Pregnant, that provides moms-to-be with nutritional, nutritional advice on what to eat to ensure that they and their baby are healthy. Her book, What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler, covers nutrition for babies who are just beginning to eat and offers science-based advice and practical tips on how to get your baby to eat healthy foods like vegetables. Her latest book, What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant, offers women and men who are thinking of having a baby a comprehensive guide to what foods can promote fertility and what foods they should avoid that can be harmful to fertility. So welcome, Nicole. So, so happy to have you here today talking with us. Oh, thanks. I'm happy to be here. I love, I've listened to many of your interviews. So I just think the information that you have to share is going to be so useful for my audience. So let's just dive right in into a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you even got into this field of food addiction. 
Well, my background is in neuroscience. I actually was a graduate student at Princeton University and going for a PhD in neuroscience when I first became interested in food addiction. And it was really kind of serendipitous. I was in a lab at Princeton. I had just joined um, the laboratory and just started my PhD. And I was talking with my advisor one day about what I might do for my dissertation project. And we started talking about this idea that, you know, we're having this obesity epidemic and nothing seems to be working. And what if it was something about the food, not necessarily something about the people who are eating the food, but the food themselves that could be causing people to overeat and maybe causing people to crave the foods and seek them out, maybe almost like how drugs are sought out by people who are addicted to them. And so that's where it kind of began. And it this project kind of started off as a simple PhD project to develop a model of food addiction to see if it's something we could measure and test and if it existed. And it's still something I'm working on. I, I often joke that I'm still working on my PhD, although I did receive it many, many years ago. I'm still working on the project. Um, and it really turned into something that is more of a career for me now because there's just so much to understand and so much more that we can learn about it. Yeah. And have you ever had any personal struggle with food addiction yourself? I haven't. I think that, you know, I, I don't really think there's anyone out there who hasn't struggled with food on some level in their life. And I think that this is because we live in a society that has such mixed messages about what's healthy and what's not. We live in a society that unfortunately puts a lot of focus on, you know, the number on the scale and, you know, what size clothes people wear as a way to determine whether or not they're healthy or not. And I think that all these mixed messages make it very difficult for people to understand what a healthy diet actually looks like. So fortunately for me, I've had a, a relatively healthy experience with nutrition. And I think partly that's because it's something that I do for a living. Um, but I have worked with many people over the years who have struggled with food addiction and it can, it can be heartbreaking. It, it can really affect people's lives in a way that is like what happens when families get affected with drug addiction, where it can take over. And so that's why I hope that the research that we're doing and the writing and the educational pieces that I'm putting out there are helpful to people and give them some abilities to move beyond the addiction and work to remedy it. Yeah, I am so grateful for the work that you're doing. And even more so, I think for, because I think a lot of people that have not experienced food addiction um, kind of might just say, oh, that doesn't exist, or this isn't something that's really an issue. So I really appreciate that you're someone that by doing the research you have seen and seeing yourself with the people that you've helped, that this really is something that, um, can be very destructive. You know, we think of drugs and alcohol addiction, but food addiction too can also really cause issues um, in people's lives. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And I hope soon that this is something that becomes medically recognized that more people can get the help they need with a diagnosis that's required to get help. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why I got interested in this field from the beginning was because when we started to do some research about, you know, where would we start if we wanted to study food addiction, what was out there, what was in the literature, and this is going back over 15 years ago, there 
was really nothing. There was no science out there about it, but there were a lot of anecdotal reports of people saying that they were addicted to sugar and that they were addicted to food. So people were talking about this and experiencing it and having to live through it, but there wasn't any science to back it up. And so that's really kind of where we came in and we were able to do those empirical studies and, you know, start this area of research. And now it's really grown and there's so many laboratories and researchers out there who are interested in studying this and contributing to the field. And I, I agree. I hope that at some point we'll get to the point where it is a recognized medical diagnosis so that people can more easily get treatment and get the help that they need. Because a lot of times when people are struggling with a food addiction, they're kind of bounced around and not really taken seriously by their doctor and their doctor might say, well, you know, why don't you try to do Weight Watchers or why don't you try to, you know, maybe take this prescription and that's not going to solve the problem for someone who has a food addiction. It really needs to be treated as an addiction and treated as a brain disease, which is what it is. I'm so glad to hear you say that because, yeah, I know I, I went for treatment for many years for binge eating disorder or trying to eat in moderation. I can't, you know, even imagine the amount of money and time I spent trying and I was really motivated to help myself and just didn't have the proper resources to do that. And I really don't want to see other people have that same struggle. So it makes me so happy that there does seem to be this definite shift right now. Um, in the world of addiction of really people understanding it and working on helping other people get the help that they need. So it's so important. Well, talk to us a little bit about some of this research that you have found. I know you just mentioned it's a disease of the brain. Can you talk a little bit more um, about that? Yeah. So when we first started doing this research, we wanted to basically see if the effects of food on the brain were like what would happen if people were using drugs. And so we did a whole bunch of studies looking at the reward system and the brain reward system. Because one of the things we know about drug addiction is that the reasons why drugs of abuse are so addictive and so devastating to people's lives is because they overactivate or hijack the brain systems that are involved with reinforcement and reward in our brains. And so that's why people can, you know, very quickly and easily become addicted to things like alcohol or morphine or heroin. And we essentially applied those same types of ideas to sugar at first. We did a whole bunch of studies looking at sugar and if, you know, overeating it could produce some of these changes in the brain that would be like what happens with a drug. And what we found was that there were indeed changes in the dopamine system. There were changes in the receptors for dopamine. There were changes in the brain opioid systems or endogenous opioid systems. And all of these changes were just like what we would see if the addictive substance was a drug of abuse. But in our case, the addictive substance was sugar. And so it was really interesting because it wasn't that we found just one similarity to drug of abuse. We were seeing multiple similarities in the neuroscience side of it. But then also on the behavioral side of it, we were able to see all the typical things that you look for when we're trying to see whether or not someone has an addiction to drugs. So we saw binging, craving, withdrawal, um, you know, the inability to cut back. And again, these are the hallmarks of drug use and the same criteria that are applied when diagnosing someone as having an addiction to drugs. Yeah. And that's, again, why I feel like just that information right there seems to prove the point <laughs> that it is, should be medically recognized because it looks exactly the same as it does to other types of addiction. So yeah, there are so many similarities now. And, you know, one of the things that we do in the 
scientific community is we turn to the guidelines. And so the guidelines for diagnosing someone as having substance use disorder or what's also known as addiction come from the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And this is a book that catalogs all the criteria that need to be met to have a variety of different diagnoses that have to do with psychiatry and psychology. And we've met all those criteria for addiction when the substance of abuse is sugar or food. So we certainly have met the criteria. I think it's just a matter of time before it's recognized in a way that the medical community will be able to provide it as a diagnosis. I think we're getting there, but I think it's just going to take some time. Yeah, I do. And I'm excited though, to be part of the time where I do see that happening. I mean, that really gives me a lot of hope. I think so. It gives a lot of people hope. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about sugar and the brain. I know you did a TED Ed talk to how sugar affects your brain. That was really popular. And I'll make sure I link that here for anyone that wants to watch it. But I just think that's so important, even for people that aren't addicted to sugar. um, You know, it's not like we, anyone really requires, you know, having sugar. It's not like there's a nutritional um, benefits of consuming sugar. So let's dive into that a little bit more just for our listeners to really understand um, how it does affect and impact the brain. Yeah. So it's one of those things that I think there is, you're right. There's a misconception out there that you need sugar to live. You need carbohydrates. I I wouldn't go so far as to argue that you don't need carbohydrates, but you don't need added sugar, certainly. And so one of the things that we've been able to see is that when people reduce sugar in their diet, take it out of their diet, it can change many of these brain systems that had been altered by, you know, years perhaps of overeating sugar. So we can see the reversal happen in terms of, you know, how the dopamine system is being impacted or how the brain opioid system is being impacted. And that in time will then make it easier for people who are trying to, you know, manage their cravings or trying to, you know, reduce their intake of sugar because they won't be so drawn to it because their brain won't be constantly priming them to go get that sugar. And a lot of this has to do with our environment. This stimuli in our environment that trigger these neural responses are often associated with foods that we eat. So, you know, you might smell a certain food that you crave, or you might, you know, see an advertisement for it. And that's enough to get that dopamine release going that's going to drive you and motivate you to want to go get that food. And so that's why it can be so helpful when people are able to kind of break through that cycle of addiction and, you know, reduce their sugar intake because then they can break those associations so that they won't constantly feel that pull toward wanting to go get those foods when they have that trigger. Yeah, and it's hard to, um, I've interviewed Dr. Joan Ifflin, and she talks about this concept a lot too. And it's hard to, um, we're just so overwhelmed with (laughs) these associations, whether it's, you know, going into the grocery store and smelling like the bakery aisle or Mm. seeing advertisements constantly. You know, I'm actually just newly on Instagram and 
the ad, even the advertisements, there's so much food. There was a, a donut ad I saw that, you know, I think Krispy Kreme was giving out a donut for anyone that showed they got the vaccine. Right. <laughs> I saw that. Donuts that night. And, you know, it was like, I've been sugar and flour free for three years. So these things definitely do not affect me the way that they used to. Right. But I still try to avoid it as much as I can. You know, I don't, I avoid the bakery aisle and the grocery store. And I usually don't watch TV with ads for this reason, but then I was just kind of got um, surprised over Instagram seeing that and it led to this dream I had that night. So it is kind of hard sometimes to avoid some of the, the advertising. I mean, it's just like a full court press. I feel like it is, it really is. And you're right. I mean, even if you think that you're in a safe space, like looking on social media, I mean, now the ads have found their way there, even for things like foods. So you do need to be mindful of the fact that it is very easy to, you know, get distracted by these things. And um, I think that that's one of the reasons why, we need to be extra vigilant when it comes to food. I mean, if you think about somebody who's struggling with a drug or alcohol addiction, fortunately for them, they're not constantly being, you know, pinged with ads about heroin or, you know, alcohol all the time. It's something that they can avoid to some degree. There's not billboards for it when you drive down the road. We don't see the ads in magazines that often for alcohol anymore. And it's not something that happens with food, though. I mean, everywhere you go, you're constantly being stimulated by ads and reminded about it, and it's being pushed in your face. So it is something that people need to be mindful of. You're just completely bombarded. And I know you're really passionate about nutrition for children. And this is something that drives me nuts, you know, with how much it's focused on children, too. Um, you just can't get away from it. I have a five and seven year old and, you know, I just kind of talk openly to them about it. Cause you know, we'll walk in the grocery store and they even ask, well, why, if candy's not good for you, why do they have it right here when you're checking out? And I'm like, right. I question. <laughs> you know, they're already like kind of asking these questions. Well, why do they put these things added sugar in the food? If, if we don't really need it, and I, you know, again, I'm like, you know, from a five-year-old. Yeah, exactly. This is right. <laughs> it's so true. I have a five year old as well and I have the sim conversations and it's it's really you know something that I really am passionate about educating people and helping people and parents like me to better understand how you can you know navigate this food world that we in with our kids I have a book that um, I wrote a few years ago called what to feed your baby and toddler and in that book I walk through you know the different steps of starting to introduce solids to a new baby but I also talk about how do you cope with with, you know, added sugars and sweet treats and things like that. When do you introduce them? When do you like, how, what kind of limits should you put on? Because it really can be difficult for parents because again, they're, they're constantly being bombarded with not only, you know, these advertisements at them, but then these ads are going towards kids as well. And there's a reason why, you know, that candy is in the checkout lane. It's not necessarily because parents are going to grab it, but it's because the kids are going to ask for it. And parents are, you know, trying to get through the grocery store and just get out of there in one piece. And so they're really taking advantage of a weak moment that many parents are in. If they're in a grocery store with a few kids and by themselves and they just want to pay for their groceries and get out of there, they might be sort of in a position where they'll say, oh, well, let me just get them a piece of candy. It'll make them happy. So I, I talk a lot about these issues and how, you know, we as parents can 
be aware and you know kind of navigate through this process and it's really important because what a child is exposed to in those early years of life the first couple of years are so important for not only their health but also for their relationship with food later on for how they view food excuse me view food and also we're finding that it has an impact on immune system functioning. It has an impact on cognitive health later on. So there's a lot more to it than just, you know, what your child's eating right now. It can have an impact on things later in life as, uh, in addition. Yeah. Are you finding that too with something like, you know, I've been reading a lot about how it can affect, you know, especially in their early years, their brain development too. Um, have you come across any, anything on that? Absolutely. I talk a lot about that in my book. Um, and, you know, it's something that is so important because that first thousand days of life, that period from conception through age two is critical because that's when the brain development happens. And we know now that nutrition plays a big role in that development. And so if there's, you know, excess amounts of processed foods being consumed during that period of time, which is pretty commonplace these days because so much of our food supply is highly processed now, it can have a negative impact on these health outcomes. It can have a negative impact on the way the brain develops. So I think we all need to be aware of it and just try to you know, keep this in mind when we're making decisions about what we're going to eat and also about what we're going to feed our children. Yeah. Well, I think this actually is a good segue to kind of back up a little bit and talk about, because you have so many great books that are going to be huge resources for people. And one of the things that I'm really, I guess, ashamed of or feel guilty about is that I was totally a sugar addict when I was trying to get pregnant and did get pregnant. And when I was nursing, um, I was consuming a lot of sugar, even though I was breastfeeding my babies. But um, I have limited though, once they was started with solids and stuff, um, I was always very careful what I fed them. And we still try to not completely eliminate, but try to reduce, especially the added sugars as much mm -hmm. as we can. But, you know, for people listening that maybe are thinking about getting pregnant, I know your latest book, What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant, that just came out this month, I think would be really helpful if you could talk a little bit about that, because I know you talk about not just what women can eat, but also men and how that can promote for fertility for both. Yeah, so my new book, What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant is, it's essentially a preamble to my other book. So I've written, like you said, a, a couple of books in this topic. I've written another book called What to Eat When You Are Pregnant. Um, and as I mentioned, What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler. But I really wanted to do this book about fertility and nutrition because it's so important. And especially nowadays where people are putting off having their babies until later in life. And so the window, that we have for optimal fertility is getting smaller and smaller. And we know from the research that there's so much in our food environment that can impact our abilities to conceive, our ability to have a baby. And this goes not only for women, but also for the men. And so what I talk about in the book is essentially how, you know, there's different nutrient requirements that we have that will help to ensure that we can have a healthy pregnancy, that we can get pregnant and stay pregnant. And again, for me, both men and women. And a lot of times in our just modern day-to-day -day diet, we don't get all of them. And so many people can become nutrient deficient in many of these key nutrients that are essential for good fertility. And on the other side of that, we have this added problem that 
many of the foods that we have in our modern food supply are really just not good for getting pregnant. They contain not only, you know, toxins and chemicals that can impact fertility in a negative way, but they also can contain things like you mentioned before, like lots of added sugar, which can have a negative impact on fertility. Um, lots of added salts and other ingredients that you know, are just commonplace these days in our food supply, but we know from the research can be difficult to get pregnant if you're consuming those things in excess. So I am really, really excited that the book is out now because I think it's going to be very helpful to a lot of people. And it's not for people who are necessarily struggling with infertility, although I do address that in the book, it's really designed for people who are thinking about maybe getting pregnant soon and want to optimize their health and want to understand what nutrients are important and what foods maybe are important to think about avoiding or, you know, changing in their diet before they embark on that journey. Yeah, no, hopefully, you know, by eating the right things will helpfully make that journey an easier one, you know, where they are able to get pregnant easier than you know, why by making some of these changes. Right. And these changes are really, I mean, for the benefit of people, even if they're not trying to get pregnant, it's really just <laughs> about making changes that are going to support your health. And like I said, optimizing the chances. And I think that, you know, most people these days are, you know, aware of the fact that as time goes on, people are just putting off having babies until later in life, whether or not it's for a career or just because it took them longer to meet the right person to have the baby with. And so with that comes the inevitable decline in fertility that age brings with it. And so we are up against a bit of a time crunch, I think, in most cases when it comes to getting pregnant. And so if there's something that you can do to make the process easier, I think that by all means, we should be doing it. And looking at our nutrition and our diet is something we can all do. And that's why I hope the book will be helpful to people to kind of give them a, a blueprint for how they can go about doing it. Yeah, I love it. Is there any little sneak peek that you can give maybe just a few tips to listeners of kind of what you what kinds of foods that you do recommend to help pr promote fertility? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that one of the things that I recommend in terms of foods, and these aren't going to be, you know, anything that I think would probably, you know, surprise anybody, but I really like to focus on foods that have more bang for their buck. So foods that are going to be diverse in the nutrient composition that they have. So not only will you get the benefits of whatever nutrient they're famous for, but also they may contain other nutrients that are going to support fertility in other ways. So one of my favorite fruits that I recommend for fertility boosting foods is an avocado because these are great because not only are they calorie dense, so you can feel full if you eat a, a portion of one, um, but they also contain a lot of healthy fats. So they contain monounsaturated fatty acids. And these are important because we need to have fat in our diet, when we're trying to conceive, we know that the baby's brain is comprised of fat. Fat is important for a healthy development of a baby and a healthy pregnancy. And there's also been some evidence that suggests that um, there's links between um, inflammation and ovulatory function and fatty acids. So if you have monounsaturated fatty acids in your diet, it can have an impact on reducing that inflammation, which can have a positive impact on ovulating. And so um, I think they're great because they also contain fiber and they also contain vitamin C and magnesium, all of which will positively impact your fertility as well. 
Um, and then uh, let me think of another one that I like. Oh, peppers. Peppers is another on the vegetable side of it. Peppers are great um, because obviously they come in a variety of colors. So you could eat the rainbow. So you can eat a variety of different types of peppers and they're going to be a great nutrient dense food that can really also be beneficial to your fertility too, because they contain vitamin C and they also contain fiber, which is important obviously for our overall health, but they're also filled with phytochemicals and also some other minerals that can help support fertility. So like flavonoids, lycopene, um, beta carotene, lutein, these are things that are all found in bell peppers that can reduce inflammation throughout the body. And they also play a positive role in ovulating as well. So those are just a couple, and I've outlined in the book about 20 of the top foods, and then also, um, also discuss a lot of the foods that I suggest people should avoid because they can be disruptive to our fertility efforts. Yeah, could you give us an example of what to avoid to maybe what your top one is? Um, I don't know if I have a top one. I, I, I have a, a quite a few for a variety of different reasons. And, you know, sometimes it's because of the chemicals that are in, you know, the packaging actually that's associated with the food. So the one fertility reducing food that I suggest that people really avoid if they possibly can is believe it or not, microwave buttered popcorn, mm. because it's not so much the popcorn that's bad for you, but in order to get the bagged popcorn to, you know, taste the way it should and to have those flavors that make it taste like, you know, actual popcorn, they have to add a lot of chemicals to the popcorn in the bag. And so it's a good idea to think about, um, you know, maybe cutting those out because, not only do they have all these chemicals in them, but they also have the bags lined with um, something called perfluorocatanic acid. And this is also known as PFOA. And it's basically a liner that they have to put in the bag so that it doesn't you know, leak all over when you cook it. But it's also been shown to have be an endocrine disrupting chemical that can impact both male and female uh, fertility. And it migrates into the food. So when you cook the food, the microwave popcorn, that chemical is going to get into the food as well, and it can have a negative impact on fertility. So that's one that I suggest that people maybe avoid. Um, and it's sort of a little lesser known. People tend to think like, you know, when they're pregnant or trying to get pregnant, you know, obviously stay away from high mercury fish and things like that. But I don't know if popcorn necessarily <laughs> pops on people's radars, but it should, especially if it's the microwave kind. Yeah, as I say, yeah, I don't think people would have thought of that. So that is a really good example and probably honestly something that everyone could benefit from removing from their diet. You know, it's so easy to air pop popcorn rather than doing the the microwave kind. It is, it is. And like, I, I think back to when I was a kid, when my my dad used to do it for us right in the pan, like just air pop it right on the stove with like a splash of oil. And, you know, that was it. That's all we really needed. So going back to the, the old fashioned ways of doing things is sometimes the best. Yeah, it really is. Well, I think that this book is going to be so, so helpful for so many people. Um, and I'm curious. So then you have the next book after that of what to eat when you, when you're, you are pregnant. Does that change too much between the two, just out of curiosity? It does a bit. And that's just because we know that when someone's pregnant during the pregnancy, you know, we have 40 weeks of pregnancy and there's different things happening in different weeks. And so there's different nutritional needs that a woman has. We have, you know, prenatal vitamins on the market and 
but the prenatal nutritional needs are very different in the first trimester than they are, you know, the day before you're about to deliver the baby. And so in that book and what to eat when you're pregnant, I break things down week by week Mm -hmm. and go through what's happening gestationally in terms of the development of the baby, what might be happening to the mom in terms of, you know, how she's feeling with the pregnancy, and then focus on a food of the week, uh, a food that's nutrient dense and whatever nutrients are important for that given week of the pregnancy based off of the development of the baby. And then we have a lot of, you know, great recipes um, that are in there as well. Um, to kind of complement the, you know, information that the book provides. Oh, I love that you break it down week by week too. Yeah. And it's not overwhelming. I think, you know, I know when I was pregnant with my daughters, you seek out information and it's sometimes hard to get the information that's targeted to where you are right then and there. You're having to kind of sift through everything that maybe isn't relevant to you anymore, or, you know, is like a few months down the road and you're not really thinking about that right now. So I I like the week to week approach because it's, tailored so that people can really just, you know, utilize the book throughout their pregnancy. But then also beyond that, I have, you know, a lot in the book about breastfeeding and about, you know, after the baby's born um, and just sort of that postpartum fourth trimester part of life and, you know, how nutrition plays a role then. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Cause I think that's really, really important for, yeah, making sure you're getting the necessary nutrition when you're breastfeeding. And I like that, the, the fourth trimester kind of concepts. Yeah. Yeah. So I think all that is so, so important. And then you go into, I love that. And then you can have the book of what to feed your baby and toddler. So you're really setting people up here from, you know, thinking about getting pregnant to having, you know, getting pregnant, having the baby and then raising a baby and toddler. I love it's the full complete circle now. Yeah. It's really like the trilogy. Yeah. (laughs) That's what we, we ultimately have it now. (laughs) I have a, I would like, I, my ask now would be as I'm, you know, getting into the perimenopausal years is for your next book to be really addressing, um, what women should be eating during perimenopause and, and that shift. And I'd love, especially, um, cause this is for all women, not just women that are addicted to sugar, but really even, uh, maybe a chapter on those women that are addicted to sugar, because I think everyone starts in. Um, experiencing insulin resistance. And I've heard of many people that have been free from sugar for a long time, just kind of going off the rails during um, perimenopause, menopause years because of the, the change in their hormone levels. So I'm really trying to be careful and prepping myself for this like next period. Yeah, I'm, I hate to tell you, but I'm with you. Um, <laughs> it's definitely a period of life where I think women can use some support and education about nutrition because it changes. It's you, you're so right that it's, it's very different. What you eat when you're, you know, in your twenties is going to look very differently than what you eat when you're in your mid forties pushing 50, because your body is just going to process those foods extremely differently. And it is an important area and something that I've thought a lot about, and I'll probably be doing more thinking about it as I personally get to that point in life. Um, But I I agree. I think it would be great to have a book like that to really kind of help women who are, you know, at that stage of life better understand how they can use food to their advantage and not necessarily be afraid of food. I think that's one of the things that I like to do in my books is show people that, you know, you don't have to avoid these foods or be afraid of them, but they can actually help you. And these are the foods that can help. And I think during that you know, menopausal year period, that can really be critical because I think a lot of women end up 
thinking, oh, I have to eat less or I have to be on these diets. And that's actually not the answer. There's a lot more you can do that involves you eating delicious food than simply, you know, restricting yourself and avoiding the foods that you love. And also that you don't have to be miserable. You know, I think so many women just think, oh, that's just part of this transition, you know, flushes are normal and all this stuff is normal, but really there's so much that we can do with nutrition that can really help lessen those effects. Absolutely. Um, Do you talk about too, out of curiosity and what to eat when you're pregnant, do you kind of address some of the, you know, if people are feeling morning sickness or experience heartburn or, you know, other pregnancy related symptoms that happen that some people experience, do you kind of give some tips on how to help those things as well? Yeah, absolutely. I cover a lot of the different pregnancy related issues that arise, like you mentioned about morning sickness, how, you know, certain foods can help with that, um, certain foods to avoid because they can trigger morning sickness. Uh, Also talk about, you know, other complications that kind of can come along in pregnancy, like swelling later on in the pregnancy and um, high blood pressure, all those things that, you know, we tend to have on our radar when we're pregnant as potential things to look out for that, we can have nutrition help with. And so I do go over that. And um, I think it's a a good thing to think about how we can use nutrition to proactively prevent some of these things from potentially happening. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it's so good to have these as resources. Again, I wish that I had access to, you know, I just wasn't thinking around that time about even especially what to eat when you want to get pregnant. I think that's so huge, just really optimizing your health ahead of time and just really making for an easier transition into pregnancy and after. Absolutely. I agree. And I think most people aren't thinking about it, right? Because they're just so focused on either getting pregnant or being excited about a new baby that the nutrition kind of falls by the wayside. And I think that that's something that we should try to change because we know that it is so important and it's something that can have a lifelong impact on not only yourself, but the baby as well. Well, it's just something that's not really, you know, doctors aren't really educated around nutrition. So that's not one of the tools they're offering. If you are going to a doctor and maybe having blood work done and preparation, but nutrition just not, isn't the topic that automatically comes up most of the time. I think there is a shift to that as well, but um, it's just something I feel is so empowering for us because it's something that we can take into our own hands and do ourselves once we do have this information. You know, it's not like we need to get a prescription to eat healthier. Right, absolutely. Yeah, so, and then just backing up to your very first book, I've gone out of order here, but I'm also, I I think I, I have not read this and I would really like to, is your Why Diets Fail. So that was your first book. Yes, that was the book that I wrote, my very first book, um, and it's all about sugar addiction. So just talking like we've been talking about, you know, the research, how this field kind of developed. And I also offer a lot of advice on, you know, how you can get sugar out of your diet. How do you recognize it? How do you deal with the cravings and really just walk people through the process? Yeah. So for people that are listening and, you know, aren't trying to get pregnant, but are sugar addicts, this is a great book to um, read and tell us a little bit about like what you, how you encourage people, especially sugar addicts, how they even start, I guess, for people listening right now. And a lot of them recognize, yes, 
this is, this resonates with me. I am a sugar addict, but I can't imagine giving it up. You know, it's one thing that's so hard for people right. to give up. So how do you, yeah. What tips do you kind of give for people just to get started? Well, I think that getting started is honestly the hardest part because it's so overwhelming, especially in our modern food supply that we're facing in our society that we're, we're facing because sugar is really everywhere. Um, and I talk a lot about this in the book, the psychological aspect of the addiction. And, you know, it's, yes, there's this biological component to the addiction that is very important, but there's also the psychological component as well. And I think that one of the things that I often suggest people do is start off by just doing one small thing and finding where is the, maybe the biggest source of added sugar in your diet. And for many people, that is their beverages. That's the things that they're drinking. And people who are drinking sodas, people who are you know having coffees that have a lot of sugar added to them or getting fancy specialty coffees, um, they can really pack on the sugar. And so I often suggest that people start there. And, you know, just work on cutting sugar out of the things you drink. And so maybe at first it's going to be reducing the sugar. So maybe if you were getting, you know, Vente drinks at Starbucks that had a ton of sugar and then maybe now you're getting, you know, just a tall or a grande and, you know, slowly but surely you can get it so that you're reducing and that's really the direction you want to be moving in and try to find replacements and find things that you can still enjoy, but just aren't going to have added sugar. So if you're a soda drinker, then one of the things that you know, maybe you could ask yourself is, well, why do I like soda? Is it the caffeine? Is it the, you know, the sweet taste? And if it's the caffeine, then maybe you can opt for black coffee instead, because that's great alternative way to get caffeine. And it doesn't, you know, have any, hardly any calories. And, you know, if uh, you don't add anything to it, it doesn't have any added sugar too. And then, you know, really just kind of critically look at your diet little by little. And I work with people to do this and you'll see that over time it can become easy because when you can break one little bad habit, then you realize, wow, I can break a whole bunch of little bad habits if I keep this going. And that's really the key is to just think about, you know, where you can identify the sources of sugar in your diet and slowly chip away at reducing and then replacing it. Yeah. And I think for some people, um, like for me, I went cold turkey, but I think a lot of people that's completely overwhelming to think about. So doing these little tiny, like micro steps and, um, is a lot easier for a lot of people, but I think it just depends on your, your type of personality. And it's just important to realize there's not any one way to do it, which, you know, you got to find what's going to work for you. But I do like that idea of kind of removing and replacing as a more gentle approach. Yes, I think so. And I think, yes, some people have been able to do cold turkey and have success, but it's an anomaly where those people, you know, are able to succeed. And I'm happy that they are, but I think the everyday person out there is is really just not able to do it that way. And so they need, you know, other options to help them. Yeah. And I think, you know, this also is same advice that can really help non-sugar addicts too. You know, again, I think sugar is something that most people will benefit if they have less of it. So I'm sure there's a lot of good strategies and tips in your book, even for people that aren't necessarily addicted, but would really benefit from removing some added sugar and carbohydrates from their diet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's something that, you know, everyone can benefit from. We know that the average American is consuming much, much more sugar than is recommended. So even if you're not struggling with a food addiction or overeating, 
it's really to your benefit to reduce the amount of sugar that you're consuming for your health. And I think the first step is just the awareness because it, you know, sugar comes in so many different forms. Um, it's just hidden. I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm doing pretty well until they really start reading their labels. <laughs> right. You're almost shocked at what you find, you know, even yes. now still I'll look at a label. Um, I just have to like constantly remind myself, keep reading the labels because I will still be surprised every so often at like something that snuck on to into something. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing the different types of sugars that are out there, the different names, like all that information isn't stuff that they teach kids in school. It's not like you, you're going to have learned that unless you sought out that information yourself. So I talk about that in my books and really just try to provide people with the tools that they need so they can make better choices and be able to really look at those labels and understand what they're looking at. Yeah. And I think it's come a long way, you know, now actually says on the label, like there's sugar and then added sugars. You know, I think that's really nice that it does differentiate, but it's still important to actually read the ingredient list too, is what I tell people, because um, I have seen before where it says no added sugar, and then there will be some kind of syrup or something that is actually sugar in the ingredients. Right. Yeah. I think it's important to also be mindful of the fact that you want to really try to unsweeten your diet. It's not so much about the, the source of the sweetener, but I think that, you know, the ultimate goal should be for us to reduce the amount of sweetness in our diet, because that's going to help to overcome the addiction. If you just switch over to, you know, artificial sweeteners and you have an addiction to sugar, that's not going to solve your problem. That's just going to be like a band-aid for it. And so I think it's important for people to just try to reduce the overall sweetness in our diet. And if we're going to need something sweet, opt for it to come from things like fruits, which have natural sweeteners in them that are in proportion with the amount of sugar that, you know, our bodies were designed to handle. Yeah. And I had such a sweet tooth. So I know people listening are probably like, you know, I, you know, fruit doesn't cut it for my sweet tooth. And I used to be like that, but it's amazing. Once you remove these foods from your diet, your taste buds really do change. Like when I eat broccoli now, it tastes really sweet to me. I, I actually can't even eat a lot of fruit anymore because it's too sweet. And I cannot believe I'm the person saying that now, but I really do think it changes. And I appreciate like the natural sweetness and fruits and vegetables so much more where before I just think my like taste buds were like dead. <laughs> to, right. You know, you it know, changes. To, it really yeah. does change the, the more that you um, take a look at your diet and evaluate your diet and reduce the sugar. You're, you're going to start to notice that foods just taste different. Yeah. Well, we're almost like wrapping up here. This went so fast. I'm really, really grateful to you for sharing all this amazing information I'm going to make sure to link all your details and the episode notes and all your books too. Cause I think that I'm glad we got to touch on each of them. Cause I think they're all going to be really, really helpful to listeners, but is there any other takeaway or any last words of wisdom that you maybe wanted that we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about today? Um, no, I think that, you know, this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you about sugar and just all the different aspects of nutrition and how they can impact our lives. And it's really a lifespan issue. If you think about it, I mean, we 
just from our conversation today, we're talking about, you know, in the same conversation, fertility all the way through, you know, dealing with a full-blown sugar addiction as an adult, perhaps. And I think that um, it's just so great to, you know, have the ability to talk about these things, get the word out there, educate people and provide people with the information that they need so they can live healthier lives. And hopefully we can avoid some of the struggle that many people end up facing by simply just preventatively eating healthier. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. And remember, life is so much sweeter without sugar.